7: Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 6th, 2016. On today's show, Spencer Hall will join us to talk about what some people called the greatest opening weekend in the history of college football, and others called a reminder that sports are bad and no one should ever watch them. I think you mean some people are saying that it was the best weekend in college football. We'll also talk to former NFL long snapper and U.S. Army Green Beret Nate Boyer about his conversations with Colin Kaepernick. And the relationship between pro football and the military, and we'll discuss the end of Vin Scully's sixty-seven year run as the play-by-play man for the Dodgers. Joining me in Washington D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. With us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. How many years is your broadcasting career now, Mike? The entirety of its career from starting off as a caller to a Jets radio
1: show on WGBB. 67 years. 67 years calling into the Greg Buttle show.
7: Yes. Yeah. I, I had to say the Dodgers in the intro, not the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers. Yeah. They're in Brooklyn. Yeah. Before, the Trolley uh, Dodgers. Yeah. The Trolley Dodgers. Um, so we're looking for an intern. Email us at hangupitslate.com if you're in DC, if you can... Work on Mondays if you're interested in uh, working with us. Hang up at Slate.com. Uh, what else? Bonus segment? We're doing one of those. Mm-hmm. Mike and Stefan don't know what our bonus segment is, but Surprise I do. Surprise bonus segment. Yeah. Hmm. So we're about to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Slate. So uh, we've got a little bit of a ways to go to catch Vince Scully. But uh, we've got some memory lane action. We're going to go back and listen to the afterballs from our first ever show. Oh my. From two thousand nine.
1: Wow, our show's seven years old? <laughs> only
7: sixty years to go. Wow. It, well, it felt like it feels like it's been eleven years. That's yeah. incredible. So if 2009, our show was
1: a baby, wow. it'd be
7: an obnoxious <laughs> long-winded baby. <laughs> We'll do a little extra podcaster's commentary for you on those, on those uh, afterballs from 2009. I'm not going to
3: retire from the show till I'm 106, just to match Scully's run.
7: You can sign up for Slate Plus to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. And if you do sign up, you'll get a free two-week trial. Get it at slate.com slash hangoutplus. ESPN called this past weekend the best in the history of college football which ignores the fact that there were eight intra-top 25 matchups in 1998 as compared to just four this year. But who cares about that because none of us were alive back then. Seriously, Tom Brady was the Michigan quarterback. But back to the present day, the best game was Texas's overtime win, 50-47 over Notre Dame, in which the Longhorns were led by Shane Bouchelle, a freshman quarterback born after his father had a vasectomy. The SEC had both the best and worst week of any conference, with number one Alabama destroying USC 52-6, to and the conference winning three games against other Power 5 schools more than any other league. But also the SEC lost more games against other Power 5 schools, four, than any other league, plus Mississippi State lost to South Alabama – Plus, LSU lost to unraked Wisconsin, while employing offensive strategies that Pop Warner dismissed as antiquated when he was coaching Jim Thorpe in 1907. Joining us now to discuss is Spencer Hall of the website's SB Nation and Every Day Should Be Saturday and the Shutdown Fullcast podcast. Hello, Spencer.
0: Hello, sirs. How are you doing?
7: We're doing poorly uh, due to the previously stated paragraph. But uh, how do you think the SEC did overall this weekend? As just stated, you could look at the weekend in one of two very different ways.
0: I think that it is a failure for the SEC, but it's an anticipated failure based on, one, the inability to properly develop quarterbacks for a lot of these teams, because this hasn't been a conference that's relied on quarterback talent or been able to develop it. And two, that it's, I think, in a continuation of a lot of trends for individual teams that aren't new. For instance, LSU, our case study here, has all the offensive talent in the world if it wants. It gets the best recruits out of Louisiana. It just takes these uh, mahogany trees from the rainforest, if you will, right, this precious resource, and then just hammers them into uh, into you know worthless plywood. That's what the LSU offensive staff has done, right? When people look at the NFL and they look at – wide receiver talent. A lot of it comes from LSU. It comes from LSU. It didn't produce at LSU. So it's not like this is a new thing. And then you graduate a couple of quarterbacks. Oh, and remember, the SEC actually decided to start playing real teams in the first week. How did that go? That's, that, that's what happened, right? When There's a lot of factors piling up at once here, and I don't think too many of them are new or surprising.
3: SEC, 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 SEC. Are there any other schools that play college football?
0: Uh, yeah, the Big Ten, which they would like to remind you, they'll be they'll gently and in, in a very polite Midwestern way remind you. We 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 excuse we 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 play some football too, sir. <laughs> their, their their false modesty thing is is endearing for a while. They don't have it anymore though because they hired Jim Harbaugh and Urban Meyer, and it's really fun to watch these teams hang you know fifty and seventy on. You know, people will say oh, Bowling Green, that's a MAC team. Yeah, it's a MAC team. Hawaii. Um, Hawaii, coming, by the way, from where did they play the Australia. previous week? They played in Australia in week one, and then they came to Ann Arbor. So I hope I, that
3: school I, is on a trimester system and they haven't started classes yet.
0: <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like If you look at their travel schedule, it, it's really debatable as to whether you should just the first semi-pro team in college football should be Hawaii. They really should. Isn't living in Hawaii payment enough? No, it's expensive. You got to pay them. There's no way. And they have to travel as much as they do. I know it was exciting, Michigan. It's really fun to watch. I think you're a very good football team. Looking at Hawaii this week as anything in a scrimmage would be an error.
3: Uh, looking back at those two Big Ten schools, you mentioned Ohio State and Michigan, and I guess Wisconsin. Wisconsin played a legitimate team in LSU. Given the current system that we have, how important are these early games? And is it really in the SEC's interest to play these difficult games or any other schools interest to play these difficult games given that we have preseason polls for no apparent reason and that this early loss is going to weigh on somebody's chances of making the playoff
0: I don't think it's in their interest to do it I don't it's in my interest as a viewer I mm-hmm. like it that they do it but if I were in AD I think the trick is to find a game that you can win Tennessee did a pretty good job in that and scheduling a respectable Appalachian State team that's probably as much as you want to sweat by the way Appalachian State they're really good at what they do it's not like they were going to win that game but when people look at that uh, score and they say well Tennessee barely beat Appalachian State they wouldn't be the only ones
1: first of all When we talk about if college football is worth the money, without Appalachian State, I think we'd all be staying Appalachian. So that alone is worth however much they spend on their program. But I have a really strong sense of why college basketball, why there has been a flattening and it has to do with uh, mostly diffuse talent and the great players leaving. Do you think in uh, college football... There are a couple explanations for why these upsets happen. One is that we just attend to them and many upsets don't happen. But do you think coaching is the great equalizer or is it that we misjudge the talent of the programs?
0: I think a lot of people, there's just a bigger data set overall and that explains a lot of things. You have one more game than we used to have, which definitely increases your probability for this happening. You have I think, a deeper talent pool overall. I think you do have better coaching. I think that sort of explains why you get some of these upsets. But I think paying attention is is another thing. We have all of the access in the world now, not just to, okay, that happened. But no, I can watch it happen live because every single game has been bought and sold as a commodity and made available in some fashion, right? Like You can right. stream it if it's happening. So when Arkansas lost to the Citadel, and Jack Crow got fired overnight. <laughs> no one saw that. It was just this insane little footnote to a weekend of college football that people caught up on, maybe on ESPN, maybe, but, but most likely in their sports page. Now, if Arkansas is losing to the Citadel, I can go on Twitter, bird dog it for everyone. Everyone tunes in and we can all laugh at once. That, that I think is, those are a few of the factors that make this different now.
1: I'll also add to that to say, yes, I watched TCU against South Dakota State. And actually the final score, if it was just the old days and I'd see it in a newspaper, I'd say, oh, South Dakota State covered the spread. But that was a close game. That was within a touchdown in the fourth quarter. And so I came away with the impression, oh, that was a near upset. And just watching so many games, I, I guess if you're attuned to that, you could come away with that impression more than is the reality.
7: Well, if you follow games on Twitter, like Spencer mentioned, Tennessee and Appalachian State, basically, Tennessee lost that game because everyone just made fun of them for about four hours (laughs) on a Thursday night. And Spencer, I don't know if you agree, but I feel like college football fan bases are the most embarrassable groups of people on earth. And
0: yes and no. Like there's how's this? They can be embarrassed, but they have no shame. I don't know if if that makes any sense, but that's about where we are.
7: Well, so growing up in Louisiana, basically what we have as a people is that at least we're not as bad as Mississippi, whether it comes to literacy rates or unemployment or football. And so after this weekend, it was just good that there was one extra game and that Another team in the same rough geographic area, like left the final taste of sadness and embarrassment for the weekend. It's like nobody remembers the LSU Wisconsin game now. It's like, ha ha ha, 28 to six, you, you uh, ridiculous old miss people doing the old miss thing. Like, that's kind of what we get off on as college football fans is that at least some other fan base is more pathetic than we are.
0: Yeah, that's why that's one reason I don't understand what motivates pro fans at all. <laughs> I, I don't. Like, a lot of pro fandom, I think, is based on this notion that we are superior to you. And I think that college football fandom can be based on a lot of different things. But it's a little more resourceful because the rivalries themselves are based on these, like, painful regional discrepancies and like inadequacies that you can kind of like port over. I I feel like people sort of play like this big game of like, you know, neighborhood Facebook board one upping. Like it's a lot like in parks and rec, whenever they would talk about Eagleton, right. There's a lot of like Pawnee Eagleton talk and you know, like, Oh man, they drink weird out of the water fountain over there. Like there's a lot of that (laughs) in college football.
3: I'd like to pivot to your uh, curtain raiser for the college football season on your everydayshouldbesaturday.com website, which is titled simply Buffalo, and it is an exegesis – I don't know what's the right word – you, you draw the comparison between the eradication of the American bison, did I say that right, and, mm-hmm. uh, and the state of football and, and football and, and its imminent or possible or maybe not so death. And you open with this fantastic anecdote about Green Trice, a man who was born a slave who fathered a son named Jack Trice who went to Iowa State.
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. And
3: and played football and died, and they named the football stadium for for him, Jack Trice. What were you going for here, Spencer? What, uh, I what, do you really believe? I mean, are you where, where do you fall on the continuum of football is dead, like the Buffalo?
0: <laughs> oh, well, I don't. You know, the, first of all, the Buffalo is not dead. It's just in a really weird state. Second, I don't know if I was going for anything no. other than an attempt to link up a lot of things that were sort of, you know, floating before you at once. And one of those is the notion of violence. Like, I think yeah. that's the thing that when people wonder what hold football has on America, I don't think it begins with anything else other than violence. I don't. Like, I think that's, that's the primary current. That's the, the main attractor. When it comes to football, I think when people say, "Oh, it's speed and talent," you go, "No, no, it's not." That's- no, and
3: and you and you illustrate that with the the video and your memory of uh, this hit in the 2004 Georgia Auburn game.
0: Yeah, that's that's the thing that gets people in the stands, and that's the thing that I think attracts people. And I and I say this by the way, as somebody who like you know, if you play football, that's one of the things that attracts you because it, it feels good to hit somebody. It does. Like that's like from the field out. Like I think there's not only a vicarious thrill for people who who are watching via uh, an innate enjoyment of violence. I think a lot of it is an invested, you know, enjoyment. They really like hitting people. Like it's a great oxytocin generating thing to just get out and like absolutely roughhouse with somebody. It just so happens that like it's this carryover from, you know, a, a very violent like we have. I don't like using culture as a variable a whole lot because you can't. Prove a lot, but if you're going to write about football, you have to understand that it exists in this framework of, of what we are, which is an, an incredibly violent country. Like well above, if you look at every other country in terms of living standards, and you look at their overall sort of like rates of violence, we are we overshoot everyone in, in the in the developed world in terms of overall rates of violence, especially in terms of, I think, our expressed level of cultural violence. And football's part of that. And, I, you know, I think that there's this counter move, you know, like your Malcolm Gladwell move. Hi, Malcolm. Your opinions suck. Um, to sort of absolutely abandon football because it is violent. And my point is always, okay, you know, you could do that. But most of your actions at one point are going to run into this central conflict in your life. And if you think I have a definitive answer for that, I don't. I, I, you know, Frankly, I think football is a pretty small chip in that in terms of the overall impact you have as consumer and citizen on, you know, America's overall obsession with violence. I, I think it's a very small thing. I think it's a very theatrical thing. I think it can be like this. I think it can be a really pompous thing to sort of stand up and say, you know, I've I no longer watch football. Oh, cool. You fixed it. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm like, wow, your activism knows no bounds, sir. You, you are but a Jane sweeping the sidewalk in front of you, right? To make sure you don't step on a fly.
7: Mike, can you fix it?
1: Uh, well I could add a couple things the buffalo is not gone but it did lose to Albany which uh, is not a good way to start the season and the second thing I've been researching the difference between embarrassment and shame and the easily embarrassed but the not easily shamed I think it's that shame is more of a conscious feeling a feeling of mindfulness knowing intellectually that uh, you have done something wrong whereas embarrassment is an instinct and I think there's a lot about fandom that is about that reptilian part of the brain that's a reaction to instinct as opposed to consciously thinking much out.
3: Right. The shame is that we watch football and feel guilty for watching it. It's not that we're embarrassed to watch the sport.
7: That's I the thought sh- we were talking about <laughs> the feeling at Davis Wade Stadium when a field goal clangs off the upright with six seconds to go and you lose to South Alabama. We I was got a little wa- bit more high-minded there uh, <laughs> yeah. at the end than I was, I was going for.
0: I was just wondering which one, you know, which one covered being a Jets fan.
7: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be... Yeah, that would
1: be um, embarrassment. Yeah, the difference, the, the combination of humiliation, shame, and the German word for shaking your head when your fellow fans uh, assemble in a giant stadium sh- stairway and chant at female fans to show their breasts.
3: schaden yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
7: So, all right, let's, let's wrap it up. But um, I started mentioning Texas-Notre Dame. We didn't actually get to the content of the game, which feels somehow appropriate. But there was a lot of talk after that. Um, this game Sunday night, it was the only game of the night, did monster ratings. That you just there was mention
1: the, the, the extra point, <laughs> the crazy returned extra yeah, the point? Block,
7: the kick to, the, the, <laughs> loose, the loose deuce, as someone in my <laughs> Twitter mentions, uh, christened it. Um, there was just some kind of discussion of the fact that this was what makes college football great and different than the NFL. Um, and I had that feeling, too, watching – that game, that uh, it was a kind of happy to have college football back sort of moment. Did you feel that way, Spencer?
0: Yeah. Is by the way, that's that's not normal for Texas. Like D.K.R. Daryl K. Royal Stadium, that that's unusual. They're not normally that loud, and uh, I, I can't help but think that beer sales might have helped with that. It's interesting to watch that game because I think a lot of the things that were really compelling about it when people say, well, you know, the NFL can't do that. Well, the NFL can't do that for a lot of reasons. And one, it's because their players are too good. You're not going to get a lot of two-point conversions off a missed extra point that gets blocked. You, You won't get that. You won't get a lot of the, like, blown assignments you get. You won't get... I think, a lot of the kind of margin of error that allows for games like that. There's other things that you don't get, right? There's always trade-offs. The other thing that I think makes that environment, television sells that so well. You have an environment that's full of very excited young people for the most part. Or if you watched the Florida State game last night, a really grumpy dude who looked like he was about to strangle himself. I, I don't know if you know the guy I'm talking about. He had a mustache. Fail yes. Earnhardt,
7: he was, yes. he was called.
0: Fa- Fail Earnhardt. Well, Fail Earnhardt got the last laugh. Be careful who you meme. Be careful, <laughs> Be careful, careful how you meme who them. you meme. That's a good that, cause, When
1: cause you, meme, turn, you meme, you meme.
0: Exactly. When you meme, you might maim. And that could include yourself because Fale Earnhardt got the last laugh as Florida State reels off 33 unanswered to win that game.
7: Spencer Hall is the proprietor of Every Day Should Be Saturday. He's also with the SB Nation website and he does the Shutdown Fullcast podcast. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you all. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Last week in San Diego, Colin Kaepernick did not stand for the national anthem for the fourth straight preseason game, albeit the second time anyone noticed his gesture. The previous week in San Francisco, the 49ers quarterback sat on the bench during the Star-Spangled Banner. Apart from his teammates afterwards, he explained that he was protesting inequities in American society the way that people of color are treated in this country— this time, he kneeled on the sidelines with his teammate Eric Reed beside him, also on one knee. When the anthem was over, Kaepernick hugged Nate Boyer, who won the Bronze Star while serving as a Green Beret. Boyer became a long snapper at the University of Texas after his stint in the Army and caught on with the Seattle Seahawks briefly. He's now one of the leaders of the group Merging Vets and Players, a nonprofit he started with Fox Sports' Jay Glazer. He connected with Kaepernick after writing a piece for the Army Times that included the following passage. I'm not judging you for standing up for what you believe in. It's your inalienable right. What you're doing takes a lot of courage, and I'd be lying if I said I knew what it was like to walk around in your shoes. I've never had to deal with prejudice because of the color of my skin, and for me to say I can relate to what you've gone through is as ignorant as someone who's never been in a combat zone telling me they understand what it's like to go to war. Even though my initial reaction to your protest was one of anger, I'm trying to listen to what you're saying and why you're doing it. Joining us now is Nate Boyer. Hey, Nate. How's it going? It's going very well. And uh, your piece in the Army Times kind of filled a gap for me, um, because one of the things I just didn't really understand in the early days of the coverage of Colin Kaepernick was why the people who disagreed with his stance were expressing their disagreement the way they were, just so angry and not really willing to listen. And so I'm wondering how you came to the place where, you know, you didn't agree with what he did. It wasn't what you would have done, but you still respected it and wanted to speak with him about it.
4: Well, I mean, first of all, you know, the reason those people felt that way is the same reason I felt that way initially, um, because of what a lot of people in this country fought for, uh, is, you know, what that, what that flag represents to them, what that anthem represents to them is very different, uh, oftentimes from what a a typical civilian, you know, represents to them. So it, it, uh it felt like a, you know, like a punch to the gut kind of from a lot of people, I think, because um, the fact that we have so many freedoms here and, and, and all that, um, it, it's something that is is uncommon in a lot of other places, I think. Um, however, the more I thought about it, the more I realize, you know, what he's actually doing is expressing those freedoms by doing what he's doing. And and whether I agree with it, disagree with it, whether it makes me angry or not, it doesn't really matter. Um, so I tried to come from a place of, um, of, of understanding and listening. And while I'm not going to be able to relate to what he's gone through and he's not going to be able to relate to what I've gone through, um, the fact still remains that what we actually fought for um, is his very right to do that, and so uh, that's that's sort of where I was coming from at that point. And it just, uh, it, like you said, although I may not totally agree with the gesture, and I think maybe there's a better way. There was maybe there would be a better way than sitting on the bench, uh, you know, isolated from his team. Uh, still, that is his right to do.
1: At the same time, yes, of course it's his right, but he could be expressing opinions so odious that we would all say, yeah, it's his right, you can't arrest him or anything, you probably shouldn't kick him off the team, but they're so horrific that I can't stand by him. But you met him and you heard his complaints, so what are your thoughts about his complaints, uh, a little bit separate from how he chose to express the complaints?
4: Honestly, I wouldn't have stood by him if he didn't uh, sort of agree to come off the bench and take a knee alongside his teammates, which he he did, which I thought was a, a big step. And it, uh, is it definitely a much different uh, image? You know, uh, taking a knee is, is more of a sign of, uh, seen as a sign of reverence. People take a knee to pray. Um, people, even military. You know, we take a knee when we're on a, a patrol and we go into a security halt. Everyone takes a knee, um, and, and he was doing it right with his teammates, alongside his teammates, which I thought was much more sensitive to people that may take offense to him not standing for the anthem um and so that's why i had to stand alongside him but i did agree to meet with him when he reached out to me um you know after he read the letter he was moved by it and he's a, a huge supporter of the military and he didn't want to, to to offend those people you know he didn't want to offend people like me that fought for this country and uh he reached out and said "Man, i'd love you to come down to san diego and just meet with me and discuss some things and um and so I agreed to because that was a big uh that was very mature of him I thought. Um and so I went down there and we met in the the lobby of the Weston in downtown San Diego <laughs> and uh we actually sat right next to the big windows kind of facing out to the street. So there was there was people walking by, you know, looking at us and a couple people I think were putting it together what was going on there. Um people were taking selfies with him in the background, it was pretty funny. <laughs> and uh But it was like a very, you know, mature conversation. It was just uh, no cameras around, uh, nobody feeding anything into his ear about, um, you know, what he should or shouldn't say and all that. Um, And we talked about, you know, the first thing out of his mouth was he thanked me for my service. And uh, he also talked about, you know, how he thought that veterans didn't get get taken care of the way that, that they probably should uh, in this country and that there's, that we could do better in that way too. And I said, I agree. I said, maybe that's something you should think about, you know, mentioning, um, because I think it would go a long way with the veteran community, um, to to say something like that. And, you know, he he talked about the fact that veteran suicide was an issue in our country. And I said, yeah, it's it's roughly 22 a day. It was a battle of suicide. And he was like, man, I didn't realize it was 22 a day. I was like, yeah, I mean, we, we got a lot of problems in this country, um, things we could, we could do better at. Um, and I think it's important that, in my opinion, people understand that y- y- you, know, you don't see this as the only issue and that you also recognize that there are a lot of good police officers out there that do it the right way every day. And that's a hard job. They don't get paid a lot of money. Um, you know, it, it's, <laughs> they're, not, they're not liked very much right now. Um, in our country as a whole, and it's just it 's difficult, but somebody has to do that. We still need our our our, our peace officers, you know so we just yeah continued conversations we talked directly about it being military appreciation night in San Diego in a very military town. what were other ways that he could express what he felt like was important to express um and so you know, he sort of came to the conclusion that he would he would do the knee and he asked me if I would do it alongside of him. Uh and I said, no, I, I, I can't take a knee. I gotta stand with my hand on my heart and sing the words 'cause that's that's what I do. I took an oath. And uh so I told him I would stand alongside him though if he was willing to do that. So it was it was pretty cool. It was a um I think it's got sort of a snapshot of America, sort of where we're at right now in a lot of ways. Um, at least with us, willing to to listen to each other, even though, you know, we don't necessarily agree or see see eye to eye on everything. Um,
3: Yeah. I, you know, Nate, I think that you accomplished two things by meeting with Kaepernick. And one is you humanized him and his protest. He went from some abstract rich jock who's just trying to draw attention to himself to a thoughtful young man who has serious feelings and concerns about the country and wants to raise issues because he has a platform to do it. And the second thing is, I think that you you brought uh, a light on the conflation of The national anthem and support for the military and sports. And you've written and talked about what a tremendous honor and a rush it was for you to carry the American flag out onto the field at the University of Texas and for the Seattle Seahawks when you were in training camp with them last year before a preseason game. And yet, there is that question of how do we properly honor? the military in our country and how do we properly honor service and the flag and the history of the country and whether sports is the right way to do that. You, you seem to think it is. Well,
4: you know, what we have as far as every Sunday in, uh, <laughs> in, in, in the fall here is, you know, uh, quite an amazing thing. I mean, football is such a huge part of our culture, right? But at the end of the day, it is just a game. It's just a sport. Um, but it matters a lot to a lot of people. And it's one of those things that, I mean, it's kind of, it's sort of become, uh, it's passed baseball up sort of as our national pastime now. And it's definitely, um, just a way where everyone comes together, you know, and obviously they, they pull for different teams and all that stuff, but it's all in good fun. And uh, all those the different faiths and political beliefs and a lot of that stuff kind of goes out the window for a little while, um, which is great, you know, but at the same time, I think it's important to recognize how fortunate we are to be able to do that and, and why we'll be able to do that. And a lot of the, the reasons for that is the people that fight to defend it, whether it's here on American soil or overseas, those people are needed, you know what I mean? It's important. Uh, and I think that, that to me, it's one of the, it's one of, it's a great way to honor them. You know, every every, when I was overseas, I would watch football games, uh, in the middle of the night because we were ahead of time, um, if I didn't have a mission, you know, and it meant, all, it meant a lot to me. It was like my escape, you know, and now the same for a lot of other soldiers as well and Marines and and, and airmen and, and uh, sailors. And we loved, uh, you know, we loved those gatherings in that time. And um, while well, it, it shouldn't be, you know, football shouldn't be, become this political thing necessarily, um, that, that short time before the game where they, they honor uh, our nation's colors, um, it, you know, it was special to me anyway.
7: What
1: are your thoughts on the uh, revelation last year? It was revealed that the Department of Defense paid the NFL more than $5 million over four years for ceremonies beforehand, stand up and honor the troops, which would be fine if they were uh, motivated by patriotism, but they were paid for is the issue.
4: Right. Yeah. No, I, 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 I didn't think that was, uh, <laughs> I didn't think that was the best thing to do. And, and I think they've since fixed it, uh, which is good. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, that you know, that didn't, that didn't make me excited. Um, but I don't know. I I know, I know most people, um, that I've met anyway, that work, uh, work with the NFL and play in the NFL and just, just like most police officers and, uh, most people of color and all that. Most people in our country are good people trying to do things the right way. And, um, you know, unfortunately when, when bad things happen, um, that seems to just get focused on, uh, you know, our, 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 we have a big problem with our media um, and spinning things. And, and I've been, <laughs> I've witnessed so much of that because I'm trying to be as balanced and in the middle and listen to both sides as I can, and just not take any sort of you know political stance. And every different newspaper has been written in, or or or, uh, or um, television, you know, news show I've been on, or all that. It's just spin, spin, spin to, to suit their needs, whether they're attacking me or, you know, praising me for being this, whatever they think I am. And this is wearing me out <laughs> because it doesn't help anything. It's not, I'm losing my voice and I'm afraid for Colin in a lot of ways that he's going to lose his, um, and what he's actually standing for because people try to exploit that and we'll take advantage of him. And, you know, I'm always cautious of these big organizations that want to get involved with this kind of stuff.
7: Um, well, there is a there is an ESPN story about you by Kurt Streeter that I thought was really good. I don't know if you thought thought it was really good, um, um, and it talked about kind of your search and your journey to figure out who you were. There was a passage where it said he has by turns been a Che Guevara inspired globetrotter, a relief aid worker in Darfur, a mentor to autistic children, a soldier for the special forces a long snapper at a big-time collegiate program, a scrappy free agent trying to be the oldest rookie in the NFL, and most recently a mountain climber on Mount Kilimanjaro raising awareness about the global clean water crisis. I was wondering if the fact that you have spent so much of your life searching made you feel a kinship, connection to Colin Kaepernick, who it seems like is kind of in a similar place where he has realized that there's something bigger that he wants to be a part of.
4: I honestly don't know if that had anything to do with it, uh, more than anything, I was, I'm just sick of the hate in our country. Um, and from both sides, you know, and I, and I, I, it's so funny. I I get online and I like to read the comments, you know, whether they're about me or whatever, but there's always going to, there always ends up being two people on there that just go back and forth and back and forth and I'm right. And you're wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. And it's just, doesn't get it's not getting us anywhere
7: we need to send a special forces soldier in there to clean up the comments <laughs> it's extreme <laughs> prejudice it's not work. it's,
4: it's, it's <laughs> we're, we're 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 so far gone in that at this point it's just really frustrating and so anyway, I'm just trying a different tactic um that's what we do in the special forces you know we uh we we make mission no matter what and I'm just trying it, trying it a different way and, and uh our current mission in the Middle East is to train advise and assist uh local indigenous forces that's what that's what the special forces do and uh I'm just trying to to, to try, train advise and assist the uh, the situation as much as I can uh to improve it. And uh that's all I'm looking to do i'm not a I'm not a political guy at all, and I'm not trying to go any direction like that. And, you know i i uh i I think Colin as just as a person man to man from our conversation is uh is is a is a good a good kid you know he he does care and he's very passionate. Um, I just want to try to help him not lose his message um but also not upset so many people. Um with, with which with what what he's doing and why he's doing it and, and not for the message to get lost because everyone's so focused on um on the gestures
7: themselves.
3: Nate, do you think you can still snap in the NFL?
7: I can? Oh of course. Yep. I can do it right now. Stefan was a field goal kicker. So you guys should get together and maybe be a package deal for an NFL team. Yeah. There we go. I'm in.
1: He was also Scrabble Special Forces. <laughs> <laughs>
7: Nate, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything coming up that you want to mention that you're going to be doing? We know that you started the nonprofit with Fox Sports' Jay Glazer, merging vets and players. Is there anything kind of with that that you're working on?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, what we're doing uh, mainly right now is the the homeless veterans in Los Angeles. There's a huge population of that. And, a bunch of these guys are young guys, too, from Iraq and Afghanistan era. You know, right now, every Thursday, we're having them come down to, to, Jay's, uh, to Jay's gym, and we train them, train alongside them. Uh, we bring in, um, you know, we merge them with uh, players, and some of these guys are ex-UFC you know, fighters, NFL players, hockey players, baseball players. And after we, 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 we train together, we sit, sit down on the wrestling mats, and we just have a fireside chat, and all these guys share and we try to build them back up and really coach them uh towards towards finding purpose again and uh you know that that that's that pride in themselves um and and what they've done and, and what they've sacrificed and you know trying to get away from that the survivor's guilt that so many of them suffer from and uh it's just it's really moving it's it's tough to do it's hard work and uh it, it's exhausting but <laughs> but honestly it's uh it inspires me every time I get a chance to do it.
7: All right, Nate, thank you so much. And good luck with everything. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Thanks.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're hear in conversation with business icons. This show will explore dealmaking
1: across sports, media, and entertainment.
4: And that is a harsh lesson in business.
3: Sports is not as um, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together.
1: I didn't want to do another stomp you out
0: speech. It opened up so many more doors. The The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
7: On October 2nd in San Francisco, Vince Scully will call the final regular season game of his 67-year career as the Dodgers play-by-play man, first in Brooklyn and since 1958 in Los Angeles. In many ways, Scully feels like the last connection to baseball's past. Sports Illustrated's Tom Verducci did a profile on him earlier this year in which he pointed out that when Scully began his Dodgers broadcasting career, the manager of the team was Bert Schotten, who was born in 1884. (laughs) Scully now works for the network Sportsnet LA, which a lot of people even in Los Angeles can't watch because of a cable carrier dispute. But in this last season of his very long career, his best material now percolates online, it percolates onto uh, Twitter, and we're able to hear some of his trademark commentary. So to start start us off, I wanted to play this disquisition on the human beard
2: from April 30th. Let's listen to that. I'm not going to do it now because there's two out and the base is empty. But sometime during the game, if you've been like the way I have been, looking at players with these big beards, I decided I'm going to do a little research on beards. So during the game, yeah, there's plenty of them around.
4: <laughs> I'll tell you a
2: couple of stories as we go through it. Two down, second inning, no score. And first pitch, fastball, first strike. Right. First of all, they say way back to the dawn of humanity, beards evolved, number one, because ladies liked them, and number two, it was the idea of frightening off adversaries and wild animals. There's the one-strike pitch, swung on and missed strike two. In fact, it was so serious, if you look it up, there's a divine mandate for beards in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And the Hasidic members of the audience are like, look it up.
7: I'm living it, Vince. <laughs> it sort of feels like adaptation when uh, Charlie Coffin's like, let's start with the beginning of time. <laughs> I feel like uh, we should just have Vince Scully kind of warbling in the background as we do this segment. <laughs> Stefan, we did a like elegaic <laughs> segment on Vince Scully in 2010. It's been a long <laughs> elegy. Is there anything? I mean, there's no reason not to celebrate him again. But is there anything? now that we can say about him that we that we couldn't say about him then well i think you could have said when he was 81 that
3: he had <laughs> endured pretty long and now that he's 87 he's endured even 88. longer 88 sure changed the man 88.
7: 88. 89 in november 89 in november
3: um but the remarkable thing is that how many professionals get to have the, the universal respect and are allowed to go out the way they want to go out when they recognize that I can still physically talk. I mean, obviously, his voice is compromised. It has changed, um, as an 88-year-old eight man's voice will. Um, and yet, the fluidity, the trademark, the, and you hear it even in that little beard disquisition. The greatest thing about Vin Scully is the way those stories flow, pause for the unessential 2 nothing pitch, and then resume again. And you understand that, as he describes in that Verducci piece, that what's really important is having this conversation with the public and not so much what the count is or what the last batter did.
7: Mike, maybe for a spiel one time, you should try to experiment with just in the middle of being like, two zero, 0 that's a strike, and then just keep going. <laughs> yeah, just There's see what a, happens. It, it just makes the,
1: the stories better, makes them flow. Here's one of the greatnesses of Scully. When I think about great announcers, I tend to compartmentalize them. All right, who's the announcer you want for an extremely exciting play or game? I don't know, Kevin Harlan going crazy or obviously uh, Al Michaels' uh, Miracle on Ice. Who's the announcer you want for a blowout to just uh, accompany you? Well, I take mm-hmm. the Mets announcing crew on SNY. Who's the announcer you want to explain something very complicated, I think collinsworth does it well who's the announcer that you want you know when we have all these different categories but scully's the best or second best at all those things also right he is the best in uh a, a no hitter perfect game situation uh where he's just Bringing you inside the action without stepping on it, so when the game itself is compelling, he he doesn't get out of the way. He complements it seamlessly, so you don't at all notice him. But you, it's all heightened when the game is not that exciting. Maybe he'll tell you about beards and just the sentence construction. Construction. See, I can't even do construction. He would never do that. That would be his worst mistake of a year. Um, he's fantastic. I don't understand how he has what the uh, rappers in the hip hop game call flow. He he has such flow
3: let's listen to shall we one of those great moments the sandy koufax
2: perfect game
3: in 1965
2: you can't blame a man for pushing just a little bit now sandy backs off mops his fired runs his left index finger along his forehead dries it off on his left hand leg, all the while keen just waiting now sandy looks in into his windup and the two one pitch to Keene, swung on and missed, strike two. It is nine forty six p.m. Two and two to Harvey Keene, one strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch, swung on and missed. The perfect game.
3: Think about what that has. It has beautiful description, detailed description. So minute, I can't imagine most broadcasters would even think about telling you that there's sweat on his forehead. He wipes it on his left leg. Um, It builds to a a setting, the time, and then it is a muted response, excited but not over the top when the achievement occurs.
7: So there was a, passage in the Verducci story in Sports Illustrated that we've already cited a couple times. Someone once asked Laurence Olivier, what makes a great actor? Olivier responded, the humility to prepare and the confidence to pull it off. When Scully heard the quote, he embraced it as a most apt description of his own work. And there is something about the way that he calls a game that is reminiscent of podcasting, I think, or the way that we try to go about doing things. Where you know, when the Gabfest first started at Slate, the idea was let's just put a microphone wh- and listen to how people talk. Uh, you know, when they think that the microphone isn't on, just like this is what journalists really talk about. It's not like what they write in their official stories and it's something that I've thought about a lot it's that you want to uh, have a relationship with listeners where they feel like they know you you're having a smart conversation but not one that feels like it's on top of a mountaintop and telling people you know what to think or anything like that it's more conversational and I hadn't thought about Scully as being the first podcaster but then when I read that quote there was uh something i think there's something there
1: if you want to uh get some good information on scully sports illustrated vault uh if you have access to that has some great articles over the years a recent episode of the uh baseball podcast effectively wild kind of summarized a bunch of Sports Illustrated articles on Scully. And that was a good romp. But Brian Curtis also did a really good rundown where he interviewed a lot of contemporary announcers like Marv Albert and Charlie Steiner uh, about the greatness of Scully and had a lot of quotes on there. I think the beard quote was also on there. And that was a uh, Ringer podcast. That was great to listen to. And I don't know. Stop me if I've uh, said this on the show. But one of the great things about Scully was a market dictated accident, which is that he's not a homer. And I have a theory that you could be good or maybe pretty good as a homer, but you can never be a great announcer as a homer. And like I said, the Mets announcing crew, they certainly Keith Hernandez certainly roots for the Mets, but he doesn't forefront it like uh, Hawk Harrelson does on the White Sox uh, broadcasts. He's a polarizing guy, Harrelson. Some guys do like him, even though he's the ultimate homer. But I just think it marks you as minor league. But the reason that Scully isn't a homer is that he started in New York City when there were three baseball teams and everyone listened to baseball on radio. And the idea was two thirds of your audience were not going to be fans of your team. So the market dictated that it would be poor strategy to be a homer. So he had this objective tone that made his career. There was a debate what should our tone be? And because of that reality, he decided. To have a little bit of distance. And without that, he'd certainly have all the skills and attributes we talk about. I don't know. I tend to think it's impossible for him to have been Vince Scully while outwardly rooting for the Dodgers. There's something uh, unbecoming about that, in my opinion. But it's a fascinating, I guess, accident of history that made him and defined the ideal of broad- sports broadcasting.
7: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about whether he's so beloved because of the now in particular, because of the kind of old world way that he speaks and also the way he carries himself, the almost kind of over the top humility egoless and just kind of courtly. And that's, it's not just that he can talk about witnessing Sandy Koufax's tryout with the Dodgers firsthand or that he can talk about, you know, Jackie Robinson and and Pee Wee Reese's conversation in the locker room after the shot heard around the world in 1951, having witnessed it firsthand. Having stepped over Ralph Branca on the steps, (laughs) his friend whom he traveled with to get to the locker room. I mean, there's a
1: good argument. He's seen more baseball than any human being currently on earth.
7: (laughs) I, I might have been in the Verducci piece. I mentioned that he's called like roughly half- the Dodgers games. The team started in the 19th century. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's called roughly half of the games in Dodgers history. Anyway, it's – yeah, it's not just that he's seen all of this and done all this. It's that there is this kind of connection to like the time when gentlemen would attend games and wearing hats. And especially in baseball, which is so steeped in nostalgia almost to his, its detriment, um, he is a guy – that is a living connection to a time when baseball was king. And it's not a put-on. It's like he's who he was back then now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I tend to think,
1: but for the vocal quality, the warble in his voice, if you were in charge of hiring an announcer on the major league level and some kid on a double A team gave you the tape and it was the exact quality of Vin Scully today, you'd be like, we've got to get this kid. So it's not just nostalgia that we're, and it's not just that he's done it for 67 years. And it's not just that his brand is now Vin Scully that defines his greatness. He is, you know, he he would still be, if he had drank the elixir of youth, I think he'd go another 67 years if our memory were erased that there was ever an announcer
7: named Vin Scully. Well, we should be honest and say we don't actually listen to Vin Scully every day we don't listen to Vince Scully every week or every month we don't listen to Vince Scully call full games and there I is listen I listen to Vince so- Scully
1: every month I think for okay. sure you know um, you, there's ways to get it on the uh, that's the thing there's ways to get it on, on on the MLB network and on Sirius and whenever he's on I don't change the channel
7: right yeah <laughs> um but there is like some whispers because people don't want to speak ill of the most beloved man in, on earth but that he makes a lot of mistakes now um and you know it's so if you said if you sent a tape of eighty eight year old Vin Scully, a person might be like, "Oh, that that guy sounds amazing," and also like didn't you know catch who the right fielder was? But we're, it's, it's odd know, that eighty eight year old man.
1: It's odd that the announcer for the Nashville Biscuits knew Ralph Branca personally. But okay, <laughs> I'll go with it. Um,
3: and 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 a lot of the what makes Vin Scully so indelible to people our age or older or younger. You know, I mean, people from zero to. A
7: hundred. There's also a New York Times story about all the players, the 24, yeah. you know, Manny Machado making a pilgrimage to the Vince Scully press box to get a picture with him and talk with him. All the players. Know him and want to meet with meet with him. But but
3: what I think is unifying is with the players and with fans is that there is a Vin Scully repertoire. There was a time when Vin Scully, in my childhood, was calling and my adulthood was calling national games, was calling the World Series on NBC and other networks. Um, so the connection that he's made is so universal. Oh yeah. The Mets. I, I mean, the play, World let's, Series. Well, let's play that. We've got, we've got a clip of him calling uh, the Mets Red Sox 1986 maybe, World Series
7: Game 6. Maybe we should go out on this one. Well,
1: before uh, we go out on it, let, let's also note that uh, people half in Scully's age make mistakes too. It's the Montgomery Biscuits, <laughs> Nashville sound. Sorry.
2: <laughs> All right. Here we go. If one picture is worth a thousand words, you have seen about a million words. But more than that... You have seen an absolutely bizarre finish to Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. The Mets are not only alive, they are well, and they will play the Red Sox in Game 7 tomorrow. Let's go down on the field in this madhouse to Marv Albert. And it is a madhouse. The
7: Mets were one strike. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, Marv. You'll get you'll get a segment, uh, you know, one of these days. We love Marv.
5: Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them with Royal Caribbean? You don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas.
7: All right, now it is time for After Balls. And there was a woman who uh, was the number one fan of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Hilda Chester, with the cowbell. There's a piece by uh, Rob Edelman. I'm going to talk about this a little bit in my Afterball, so I don't want to go on too long here. But um, Ven Scully talked about her in this video that was uh, on the uh, Sports Illustrated website to accompany the Verducci piece. Maybe we'll play a little clip of uh,
2: Ven Scully talking about Hilda Chester. Um, there was a very colorful lady, Hilda Chester, her name was. And Hilda started out very famous in center field, and she carried a big cowbell and whatever the Dodgers did, she'd ring the cowbell, and you were aware of her presence, very much so. And my first year, I'm there, and it's a quiet Saturday afternoon with a few thousand people, and I'm sitting next to Red Barber, and all of a sudden, this booming voice came out loud and clear, and it was Hilda. And she hollered, Vin Scully, I love you. And the crowd laughed, and I kind of lowered my head. I was embarrassed. And with my head down, she said, look at me when I'm talking to you. And the crowd went bananas.
7: That is Vin Scully on Hilda Chester. Mike, what is your Hilda Chester?
1: So I was reading an AP story, which uh, as baseball comes down the stretch, uh, headlined Kershaw Ortiz stars to watch down the stretch. Thanks. I would have. In fact, without the AP, I would have noticed those two guys. But the story starts with the following words. The last time the Chicago Cubs won 100 games, Franklin Roosevelt was president. The U.S. had 48 states and night baseball was just arriving in the major leagues. Well about that U.S. having 48 states. The U.S. had 48 states longer than any number of states in its history. 48 states was uh, the longest period of uh, state numbering in U.S. history. But why, when you're talking about the Cubs, do you go back to the Franklin Roosevelt era when you could go back to the Taft era? Sure, 100 wins, Cubs are on a pace for 105, but it doesn't matter if they don't win the World Series, and that was done in 1908. And 1908 was a fascinating year for a lot of things, including flat because the 46 star flag first started flying on the 4th of July in 1908 and it lasted 4 years the 46 star flag it was it was very uh, it's very rare to find the 47 star flag but the 46 star flag was instituted as the cubs were rounding the corner on their way to their last world series victory when Orville overall was on the mound in 1908. Yes, Orville overall, the great Cubs pitcher, the last man to be on the mound for a World Series clinching game. What else was going on? in 1908. I tried to look up what was going on in the world of business. What were the top companies in the Fortune 500? There was no Fortune 500. There was no Fortune magazine. That was not started until 1929. If it were, it wouldn't be the Model T because the Model T was made in volume in 1916. In 1908, General Motors was founded in the year the Cubs won the World Series. Horses were more prevalent than cars on the streets in 1908. Uh, The University of Michigan Wolverines played its first game as a basketball team in 1908. They played, I think, six games. Oh, football. The world of football in 1908 was rocked by scandal when in 1906, the Massillon Tigers defeated the Canton Bulldogs in the Ohio League. But there were rampant, though improved rumors of betting. Though Massillon won in 1907 and the Akron Indians won in 1908, there was no championship game. Such was the cloud over professional football. But the most amazing thing I found were, I just started, once I was on flags, I started looking up countries. Guess how many countries there were in the world in 1908? There are over 200 now. How many countries would you say existed in 1908, Josh and Stefan? 92. 137. Yeah, 65. There were 65 <laughs> countries in 1908. And among those countries, quite fascinating, uh, Newfoundland was its own country in 1908. Hmm. So that, star- that actually started in 1907. And there were some countries that no longer exist that we all know. And there were some countries that I'd not heard of, such as Ha'il, the Emirate of Ha'il, which is uh, parts of now Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Jordan. There is the country of Nijed, the Emirate of Najed, in a similar area of the world, the Wadai Empire, which is uh, today part of Central African Republic and Chad. And I came across, because I was fascinated by the flag, the Kingdom of Tavolara. You ever hear of the Kingdom of Tavolara, guys? No. No. The Kingdom of Tavolara claimed independence in the 19th and 20th centuries off Tavalara Island and the northeast coast of Sardinia. Many claim it was an imaginary state and had a population of 57. Well, Chicago only had a population of about 200,000 in 1908, the relevant year for historical comparisons of Cubs doing things notable and interesting.
3: Thank you, Mike. Mm -hmm. If I got fixated on Orville overall, I overall, I recommend his Sabre biography. His nickname? The Big Groundhog. (laughs) He's born on Groundhog Day.
7: Stefan, what is your Hilda Chester?
3: Well, the Buffalo News last week published a 7,500-word story about Bjorn Nitmo, the first Swedish-born player in the NFL. Nitmo came to Alabama from Sweden as a high school foreign exchange student. He went to Appalachian State, and in 1989, he kicked in six games for the New York Giants. He enjoyed a couple of seconds of fame when David Letterman thought his name was funny and booked him on the show.
0: Guest number four, Bjorn Nitmo. Yeah. Bjorn Nitmo. Yeah. Phonetically, of course, that's Bjorn. There you have your Bjorn. There's your Bjorn. Nit. There you have your have nit. Your knit. Mo. Mo. And you have your. Bjorn Nitmo. He'll be on tomorrow. Kicks with his pants off. Uh, coming up after this commercial, Phoebe Cates will be joining us, boys and girls. Come on
3: back. <laughs> <laughs> I like that part, too, Mike. Uh, Nitmo wore a blonde mullet and a hideous sweater when he went on the show the next day. Dave asked him about his life. Nitmo kicked a few balls into a net. A few weeks later, Nitmo came back to deliver what would be Dave's catchphrase of 1990.
2: I'm nice to see you. Happy New Year. Ladies and gentlemen, I think
0: this is probably our winner. Once again, the catchphrase for 1990. Go ahead, son. Who do you
1: think you are? Bjorn Nipmo.
3: Yeah. There he is. All right. The Giants then released him. He bounced around football for more than a decade. Canada, the Arena League, the World League. He was in Oliver Stone's Any Given Sunday, but he never made another NFL roster. He also suffered a concussion in an NFL preseason game in 1997, left his wife and kids a few years later, and, according to his family, is now a victim of football-induced brain disease. Quote, he disappears for months, sometimes years, until he returns unannounced, shabbier and more withered than the previous visit, the Buffalo News reporter Tim Graham writes. He arrives suddenly and vanishes in a poof, another fever dream figment. Quote, I think we all realized where this is headed, his ex-wife says forebodingly, adding this. If it's true what they say about CTE, he might not have a lot of good years left. But while Graham's breathless maudlin story offers claims by Nitmo's ex-wife of erratic behavior, headaches, forgetfulness, and signs of personal troubles, a bankruptcy filing, a possible name change, what's missing is any actual evidence that Bjorn Nitmo is sick. Graham never actually sees NITMO or talks to him about his mental health. He doesn't talk to anyone who has had contact with NITMO recently other than his ex-wife and kids. The only documentation in the story is a picture of NITMO in April when his family says he showed up at their Texas home looking, quote, like a vagrant with a scraggly and overgrown beard and baggy clothes and a ratty cap. The photo shows a bearded middle-aged guy in clean cargo pants, glasses tucked in the collar of his gray crew neck shirt, napping on a couch. The 1997 concussion is blamed directly for Nitmo's reported mental decline. His ex-wife says it was at least his third. Kicking off for Tampa Bay, Nitmo took a knee to the head during a tackle and was on his back for 40 seconds. He couldn't remember the play, and as Graham relates, every few minutes asked the team's other place kicker, Michael Husted, what had happened. Husted thought no football hit could wreck someone's brain so badly. The story makes a huge deal out of this, except that short-term memory loss, especially of the precipitating event, is a common after. After effect of a concussion, there's much more that's journalistically bad or weird about this story. It doesn't quote a single doctor or concussion expert, but it does quote NITMO's ex-agent, Ralph Sindrich, who says, quote, there were no concerns with Bjorn, unlike with Mitch Farrat, who took steroids and crap and was a whack job that died young. Oh, my God, that was gratuitous. Mitch Farrat, whatever he was like, reportedly died of a congenital heart ailment. There's a multi-paragraph aside about how former Letterman writers don't remember the totally forgettable 27-year-old Nitmo bits, and every anecdote has dark implications. Quote, Bjorn showed up from two states away to slip a Mother's Day card under the windshield wiper of Mary Lois's blue Honda minivan. They have been divorced nearly 11 years, yet he continues to deliver cards for their anniversary, her birthday, Valentine. But to suggest Bjorn Nitmo operates like clockwork would be folly, he didn't realize Mother's Day was over a week away. Or maybe he had somewhere to be the next week. There's also a sidebar in which the reporter reveals that he did talk to Nitmo in February for a feature about former Bills kicker Scott Norwood, against whom Nitmo competed in training camp in 1991 after Norwood's famous missed Super Bowl kick. Nitmo's ex-wife gave the reporter his cell phone number, but said not to expect a response Nitmo called him right back. He told Graham he was living in Arizona and had a job. They talked about Norwood for 14 minutes. But when the reporter called Nitmo again to discuss, quote, his life, the setbacks he has coped with, the decisions he has made, and what he thinks his future holds, end quote, Nitmo, perhaps unsurprisingly, didn't return the calls. We are left with, Graham writes, no explanations. No, we're left with a reporter whose subject refused to cooperate on a story, and a reporter who didn't do enough reporting to prove his thesis about the subject's health, and a newspaper that published 7,500 words of conjecture and hearsay that do a disservice to Nitmo, his family, and the serious issue of football brain injury and the way it's covered. You know who did manage to track down Nitmo? The makers of a short film funded by a U.S. government program that promotes foreign exchange study. It was made a year ago. You can watch it online. In it, Nitmo looks camped, talks about his career, and urges Swedish students to come to America. That doesn't prove that Bjorn Nitmo is mentally healthy any more than the Buffalo news story proves that he is mentally ill. Nitmo very well might be brain damaged from football, the kicker with CTE, and as the lead of the story says, quote, almost certainly running from himself, or he might
7: not. Josh, what's your Hilda Chester? So I was reading an article about Hilda Chester, coincidentally, by Rob Edelman. It was in the fall 2015 Baseball Research Journal. It starts off saying the New York Yankees have their bleacher creatures. The Crosstown Mets had Carl Signman of Shea Earhart, while megaphone Lolly Hopkins was the super fan of the Boston Red Sox and Braves. Then goes on to mention superfans of other teams, John the Drummer Adams, Patsy the Human Earache O'Toole, and Wild <laughs> Bill Hagee. Um, but the one I wanted to talk about was Ronnie Woo Woo Wickers, who's the Chicago Cubs superfan. We've got like Woo-hoo! a Chica- Chicago Cubs thing going on here. I'm looking at Woo Woo Wickers' Wikipedia page right now, and he does have a very... Lengthy Wikipedia page here. Longtime Chicago Cubs fan and local celebrity in the Chicago area, and he is known for his cheer. Do you want to do that again, Mike? Woo woo! Did you know about Woo Woo Wickers? Sure, everybody knows about Woo Woo Wickers. All right, I'm going to play a clip from YouTube of Ronnie Woo Woo. Here we go. All right, here's another clip of Ronnie woo woo Wickers from 2008. Cubs, 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 Obama, Cubs, I don't know how Ronnie Woo-Woo keeps up with the news like that. He's amazing. So he is actually a pretty amazing guy and has an amazing story. Um, he was abused by his mother, raised by his grandmother, and he's been going to Cubs games since the 1940s. So take a seat, Vin Scully. Ronnie Woo Woo is more of a connection to baseball's past than you are, good sir. Um, He's known to everyone, as I said, at Wrigley Field. There was a documentary about him in which he touted, uh, you know, said that Swedes should come and be exchange students in America. It's an amazing coincidence. No, it it was called Woo Life... Uh, you can find a trailer for it on YouTube. And so I was curious, though. We all think that Woo-Woo Wickers is a great guy. He's mm. a very colorful guy. Mike, sure. you've you've heard positive things about Ronnie Woo-Woo. Yeah. You love Ronnie woo Beloved, Woo-Woo. beloved Cubs fan, Ronnie Woo-Woo Wickers. Cubbies
1: fan. Mm. Yes.
7: So we had Justin Peters on a little while uh, back during the Olympics, and we talked to him about being – a beer vendor in Wrigley Field. I believe he's been doing it for sixty-seven years. It's incredible. He still hasn't gotten up to, to selling the best kind of beer, but he'll get there eventually. So I asked Justin, "Just, do you know Ronnie Woo Woo? What's what are your feelings about him? How to how to you know somebody who goes to Wrigley Field extremely often and is in a uh, sales capacity? How do you feel about Ronnie Woo Woo?" And so this is what Justin writes. He says, "As team mascots go, he beats the hell out of Clark the Cub." Personally, I really appreciate Ronnie Woo Woo, even though he really doesn't do his Cubs Woo thing anymore, even though he mostly just wanders around the park and the surrounding streets wearing a full Cubs uniform with Woo Woo on the back, trying to get people to take pictures with him. Recently, I seem to recall he's also been wearing a large boxing glove for some reason, though I could be making this up. But I like Ronnie Woo-Woo because he's a living link to Cubs history, back to the time when the team sucked and nobody cared about them, and daily attendance at Wrigley was sparse enough that a weird shouting man in a costume could become known as a superfan because his loud howls echoed through the empty stadium. Ronnie Woo-Woo is a huge weirdo, and he's a relic of a time when the Cubs weren't slick and cuddly, and I'm glad he's still around, even as I'm surprised that the Ricketts family, the owners, haven't found a way to get rid of him yet. (laughs) That said, a lot of people think that Ronnie Woo Woo is the world's most annoying man and a huge nuisance. These people have a strong case. But Justin Peters loves Ronnie Woo Woo. For the same reason he claimed to love A-Rod. He's a weirdo. He likes weirdos. We love Ronnie Woo Woo. Stefan, in particular, loves Ronnie Woo Woo. Ronnie Woo Woo is a a longtime uh, homeless man, as uh, Justin also alluded to in his – email to me and he has found his niche in uh, Chicago and uh, you know, did not have a stable job for a time in the 80s. He was able to attend uh, Wrigley Field thanks to tickets that people gave to him. People at Wrigley Field like to have him around. Uh, he was not there in 1908. So this will be Ronnie Woo Woo's first World Series championship when the Cubs inevitably win in 2016. As we know that uh, they will. And hopefully he'll be wooing as they do. Pitching woo. We'd love your feedback when what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to hang up and listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember, Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
2: That's a strike, two and one. Again, something went wrong. The driver had navigated through the fans, hit the gas, and the ambulance ran over a speed bump And would you believe the radiator fell out of the ambulance? (laughs) I mean, can you imagine the Beatles stranded in Dodger Stadium? Here's the 2-1 pitch to Yosemite Grandal. Fastball foul back. Well, that got that armored car to rescue them. The kids had figured out what was going on. And the armored car was surrounded by fans, unable to move in any direction. But suddenly, the Beatles caught a break. From out of nowhere, the Hells Angels showed up, encircled the armored car, led the Beatles out of the parking lot, and on out into the night. What a story. Here's the two -two two-pits, and that flow. Next night, the Beatles were in San Francisco at Candlestick Park. And that would be their final live performance before an audience they became entirely studio-based the next three years. The Beatles came to L.A. 50 years ago today.
1: Lucky Land Casino
3: asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?"
6: Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Ah ha! In my dentist's office.